1: We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. It is Juneteenth, also known as Freedom Day, commemorating the ending of slavery in the U.S. It was on this date in 1865 when Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas, to announce slavery had been abolished some two years after President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Today we're looking at the tradition and its history with Dinah Berry. She's professor of history and African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin, author of four books on the history of slavery, including The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. Dinah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. Can you pick up on that story? It was General Gordon Granger who led union trips to Galveston. Was that the intention, announcing the abolition of slavery? Yes, it was,
0: and there are actually some questions around whether or not he stood um, on this platform and read the the proclamation out loud. Um, There's some people that are now questioning that, but we do know that enslaved people in Texas were read that proclamation in some parts of the state, and they were told that they were free. Um, This was on June 19th of 1865. Some of them were in the fields, on their plantations, um, in the plantation homes, working, and their enslavers told them you know, you can be free, you can go where you want, you can you can work for yourselves. And some enslaved people said that they felt like on that day that they were turned out like cattle. And they were just turned loose. That's a phrase that I see over and over again. Some of them, you know, celebrated and literally left from that moment forward. They wanted to leave the site of enslavement. Others were confused, um, didn't really know where to go. Some wanted to find their loved ones that were taken from them or sold away from them. Others wanted to hurry up and go um, legalize their marriages. They went to the courthouses to the Justice of the Peace to try to find ways to solidify their unions. Others um, wanted to just do anything but slave labor.
1: So why, one, did it take so long for word to reach Galveston, Texas? Why was that the end of the known universe there as, as far as slavery was concerned?
0: You know, there's a lot of different theories about why it took that long. Um, some of them is that enslaved enslavers in Texas felt like if enslaved people were going to still work for them, they're not going to they were not going to tell them that they were free. And they just kept on working as if nothing had happened,
1: so this had not leaked into that population at all word that that slaves had been freed in the rest of the country
0: you know, that's a that's a very good question. there's there's this this notion among enslaved people and scholars have called it the Great Vine Telegraph, where there's word and information sort of passed around, and enslaved people found news. They had heard rumblings of emancipation, rumblings of freedom, and had been fighting for it from the moment that they were captured. But it wasn't until they saw legal action, they saw the end of this. they they learned that the Civil War was over. Um, and, And really, to be honest, quite technically speaking, enslaved people were all free by December 6th. Of 1865, which is when the 13th Amendment was officially ratified. Mm -hmm.
1: How many people are we talking about in this population in Texas? About 250,000. Wow. Yes. So that many people still held or bound or behaving as if they were still enslaved when they were in 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 effect free.
0: Yes. And you know, I wanted just to get back onto something you said about why it took so long. You know, this was a two-year window. Um, When you mark that from the Emancipation Proclamation of January 1st, most Southerners, particularly those in the States of Rebellion, which were the 11 states that seceded from the Union, did not believe, nor did they, enslavers, nor did they free their enslaved people on January 1st of 1863. They didn't believe Lincoln was their president. So very, um, very few enslaved people were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation.
1: So what happened to, in effect, free all of those who were held by people who didn't believe it?
0: They stayed, the ones that were in 1863, they stayed enslaved until 1865 when the war ended. So what many people talk about um, Lincoln as a great emancipator, but Lincoln didn't actually really free enslaved people because their southerners did not recognize Lincoln. So they kept on working as enslaved people, or they were running away. They were participating in the war. This was a period of of great chaos because of the Civil War. And until it ended in April of 1865, um, African Americans recognized and started seeing the weakness of the system and realized that this system was coming to an end.
1: Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the great emancipator. It was many great emancipators like General Gordon Granger, in effect. Yes,
0: yes. And individual enslavers who, from the American Revolutionary generation of the late 18th century, who started manumitting or freeing their enslaved people, or giving um, giving um, gradual acts of emancipation? That you know, by the time you reach age 18, you can have your freedom. Or the children that you have born to me, you know, are free at age 21. So you see, after the American Revolution, and there's this there's this connection between wars and freedom, right? Um, sometimes wars create freedom, and sometimes wars cause more constraints, right? So now you see enslaved people um, from the colonial period all the way through any of the battles that were fought um, through the Civil War, fighting for their freedom and looking at the spirit, this period of, of, um, of upheaval as a space for them to, to claim their freedom.
1: What was the reality of freedom for slaves after June 19th? What, what changed for them? For some, nothing changed. For some, they, they,
0: they were put in labor contracts With their former enslavers. Um, The Freedmen's Bureau came to the South. They sent agents to the South. Um, They were supposed to help negotiate labor contracts. There were stipulations such as the black codes throughout all the southern states that essentially sort of re-enslaved black people. They had legislation that was very similar to the laws of slavery where they had to actually refer to their employer as master. And, they're, and they had contracts where they worked, but they really they lived in the same cabin. Some of the, some of them lived in the same cabins. Some of them worked the same fields. Some of them cooked the same meals in the same house that they had when they were when they were enslaved. Others completely overturned their lives. They packed up their their, their few belongings and they headed to different communities looking for loved ones and trying to find places to live on their own land. They established um, black towns. The establishment of black towns came in the 1870s, 1880s, where African-Americans were trying to learn and live as free people um, away from whites. Um, Some of them went to the North and received education. So life changed for some, and for others it didn't.
1: Can you go into labor contract a little, please? Is that like the sharecropping contract? Is that what you mean by that?
0: Yes, absolutely. So there were contracts um, where they were they could live in the house and rent the land, um, but they really didn't get a port. They weren't paid wages. So you have, this is where we, we see um, African-Americans falling into debt peonage, where they're in debt indebted to the labor of the, the, the crops that they're producing on the, the estates that they used to be enslaved on. So this is a system that moves us into Jim Crow, um, into the Jim Crow era, which lasted up until the 1960s. And African-Americans were often put in, in positions that kept them subservient. We know that in 1866, a year after um, enslaved people were free, we know that the KKK was formed in uh, Poluski, Tennessee, um, as a sort of a white fraternal, a fraternity that became a way to control and patrol uh, formerly enslaved people. Um, and they sort of ruled the land in, that, in different parts of the South, um, uh, vigilante justice, as some people refer to it. We also know that the Black Codes were in effect in 1866. And African Americans also started celebrating Juneteenth, and some of their first festivals occurred in 1866.
1: Yeah. How were, what were those early celebrations like?
0: Oh, they were wonderful. They were, from what I've read and the, and the, the images I've seen, um, African Americans, this was their Independence Day. You know, just like the Fourth of July is the United States' Independence, Juneteenth became African Americans' Independence Day. They had barbecues. They um, sang songs, they had parades. They also shared stories and talked about the people that came before them. They recognized people that had been enslaved. They told the young kids about their relatives and their descendants and told them to be proud about the people that they came from and that they survived the institution of slavery.
1: We're learning about the origins and traditions of Juneteenth with Dinah Berry. She's an author and professor at UT Austin. How do these traditions differ from contemporary celebrations of Juneteenth?
0: You know, I think what's missing today, and this is just from living in Texas and being to, and having the, the opportunity to visit and go to some of these celebrations, I think we've lost a little bit of the historical piece where um, children are learning about the history of slavery. Um, I think back in the early early celebrations, it was very clear because they had relatives, they had parents and grandparents and great-grandparents that had been enslaved, that the elders would tell stories so they wouldn't forget about what life was like during enslavement. As we've moved to four, five, six generations out, um, those stories are not passed down as much. It's not to say that they aren't because these celebrations differ. Uh, more than 38 states today celebrate Juneteenth. And there's, they do it in various ways. I think what I would like, me personally as a historian, would like to see it to continue to be reflective in the way that it was in 1866 and even in the early, early late 19th century, where African-Americans were closer to the history of slavery. And they talked about um, remembering, um, remembering about the institution and recognizing and honoring those that
1: survived it. Well, I do want to point out that in 2011, Georgia became the 37th state to recognize Juneteenth at its state capital, but it is still not a national federal holiday. My colleague Leah Fleming, she's host of Morning Edition here at GPB, spoke with State Senator Donzella James, who's trying to make that happen.
0: There's still Confederate holidays. So Emancipation Proclamation, finally for the whole nation, and now it's called Juneteenth, should be celebrated here as well.
1: Why do you think there is an ambivalence or hesitation among legislators to recognize juneteenth as a state or national holiday for that matter
0: most of the states um, of the 11 states that seceded from the union freed their enslaved people in 1865 in april and officially in december so a lot of the other states and state representatives feel like why should we celebrate juneteenth when in our state our enslaved people were in fact free after the Civil War. That's one of the, the barriers. Another barrier is um, I think people are hesitant to recognize the history of slavery in this country. Um, it's a stain on our, our nation's um, story and it's something that makes people very uncomfortable. I've, I've, I've experienced this for most of my career in talking about this, this history. Um, and also people think that the 4th of July is the, the time that we need to celebrate and they don't want to look at issues of when African-Americans did not consider the 4th of July their holiday. Um, one only has to listen to Frederick Douglass' or read Frederick Douglass' speech, "What um, what for the slave is the 4th of July. And I think that's a very powerful speech that you know, that some Juneteenth
1: festivals actually participate in reading aloud. It's interesting here though, five st- the five states who don't recognize Juneteenth, Hawaii, New Hampshire, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, those were not slave holding states. So, you know, part of Juneteenth, it's, it's as if many African-Americans celebrate and recognize it, but but a lot of white Americans scarcely recognize it, scarcely know it. So if you're talking about acknowledging history, do you think this is more of the, well, we weren't participants in that part of history, so we don't need to celebrate?
0: Absolutely, I do. And, and that's always, that's often the case. And that's one of the reasons why people don't feel like we need to educate and teach people about the history of slavery. It's, oh, that was a long time ago. You know, none of my descendants were involved in that. So let's just sort of move beyond that.
1: Well, you have said in many of your articles that your public press appearances, talking about your books, that you welcome public debate about these kind of issues. Have you seen, however, successful examples of that going on around Juneteenth, which is often, you know, a celebration, go to the park and have a barbecue?
0: Yeah, I actually have, um, and I, mean, I don't know if that's really a function of me living in Texas um, because it's very popular in Texas, and it's not just you don't just see African Americans at these celebrations. These are community events, um, which I think is beautiful, and um, and you have people that are recognizing this the history that Juneteenth represents. So I think that I, as I as you mentioned, I do believe we need to have these conversations, and I think it's important because. You know, our history as as an, as American history is not necessarily a history um, that has all positive stories or all happy endings, but it's it's part of our history and we need to have these conversations.
1: Donna, you mentioned one of the things you think is missing is a sense of history, you know, the oral tradition that was in those early experiences of Juneteenth and those early celebrations. What are, if you could pick out, just a couple of the myths or the misunderstandings about the institution of slavery that we carry on from generation to generation?
0: Well, one myth that we've we've sort of talked about briefly is this whole notion that 1863 was when African Americans received their freedom. And that's not, you know, they did not, Lincoln did not free, he may have issued a proclamation that claimed or stated that African Americans were all enslaved people in these states were to be free but they were not given their freedom. And I think that's a very important distinction and myth that people make assumptions about Lincoln as the great emancipator. He made statements um, that if he could free one enslaved person and have our union solid, he would. If he could free none uh, and still have the, the states come back to the union, or if he could free all the enslaved people, his, his main purpose was to focus on the union. He wanted this 11 states to come back to the union. It was not about slavery. Um, Another one is that there's this notion that um, African Americans were happy and to be enslaved and that they were well taken care of. I have I've had in the past, not recently, but students say, well, you know, it's good for them to have come to this country because they would have been stuck in, quote, unquote, third world Africa. And I always respond to students and say, well, look at all the natural resources and all of the, the human capital that was stolen from Africa what kind of nation, what kind of country, what kind, I mean, there's multiple countries there, but look at the continent of Africa, what would that have been had it not been colonized? Had African, have Africans not been taken? Oh, another myth is that um, there's this dichotomy between house slaves and field slaves enslaved people, and that all the dark-skinned slaves were out in the fields and all the light-skinned slaves were inside, and that's not the case. That is sort of a myth that came out of, the I would say, maybe the 1960s, 50s. I'm not quite sure the origins of that, but there was not this strict color divide within the plantation communities.
1: Well, so much of that history depends on the teller. The New York Times published an article about a geography textbook referring to Africans brought to American plantations as workers or indentured servants rather than as slaves. So as a history professor, what is the most important thing you stress to your students about America's past? The first thing I
0: do in any African-American history class um, is I start off in Africa. And I look at the history of African people as being free and uh, living in communities that had universities, that had tax systems, that had um, very, very sophisticated societies, and then they were taken into and captured into enslavement. So I ta- I start off with freedom, and most people start off with enslavement. I start off with freedom, and I move into captivity, enslavement, and and show all the different places and spaces where Africans and then later African-Americans were fighting for their freedom from the moment of capture until the moment of freedom.
1: Dinah Berry, I wanna thank you so much and happy Juneteenth. Thank you, you too. That is author and University of Texas at Austin African History professor. She is author of four books on slavery, including The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. And we will leave you with the, what is known as the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Lift every voice and sing